back for season two. Yay! Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We are back on the air. It's all recorded on air, wherever you want to call it, after, oh, what's it been? Nine months since we, ten months, I think. It's been a long time. (laughs) We recorded the Christmas special and a huge amount has changed since then. Um, Back then, the vaccine had just been, I think, approved and and, and rolling out across the, the country. And now, majority of the country have had their second dose and we're looking at booster jabs. So, you know, things move fast in the world of, of science. So, really exciting time to sort of follow the ins and outs of science. So, we kind of thought, didn't we, that it was time to bring it back, time to do a second yeah. season. Welcome back to my co-host, Katie Bax, the blonde <laughs> How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Apologies if my sound is a little bit funny. I could not get my microphone to work. But yeah, I'm very good, thank you. I'm very, very glad to be back. I've missed this. Uh, yeah, still going, still going. How about you? You all right? Good. Well, we no longer work together, which is another thing that's changed since the last time we recorded this. This is actually a nice way for us catching up each week, isn't it? Yes. Okay, so um, some new things for season two, some some old things, some familiar things for those who are following us in season one. So we've got our scientific articles uh, that we found for for the most recent scientific discoveries and things, or just things we think that are cool we want to talk about. We've got the lame science jokes, yay. We've got uh, Katie's fact of the week. Um, but we've got a couple of new things. We're gonna, we've got a new segment called the Darwin Awards, which we thought would be cool. Sort of, um, I'll explain what they are when we get there. And Katie, you're going to do a cool new segment called This Week in Science. We're going to look back and see what things happened in this week at some year in history in the world of science, which is great. Should we get cracking? Yes, please. Awesome. Right. So I'm going to start on my article and it's not really an article i have to say i'm going to be i'm going to be a bit honest where i got this one from i've actually stolen this one from tiktok yes i've tried to be down with the kids tiktok actually it's really cool highly addictive um ridiculously addictive i find myself on it for ages and there's some really great stuff on it lots of cool science stuff on there um and i saw this this astrophysicist um and she was talking about gravitational waves and i found it just amazing just more more a bunch of factoids rather than an article so basically on the 5th of january 2020 um before the world went kind of crazy um something immense happened to planet earth and that and it probably wasn't the first time um that this happened in fact we know it wasn't the first time this has happened but um this one particular instance was when gravitational waves hit the earth. Now, gravitational waves are, were proposed by Einstein in his theory of relativity in 1916, so he proposed them that, that they should be out there. But obviously in 1916, and all the way through most of the 20th century, the technology to detect these gravitational waves just didn't really exist. Now, gravitational waves are well, like what it says on the tin, really, they're waves. So if you imagine you drop a pebble in a, a pond, you get 
ripples or waves moving outwards from where the pebble impacted on the water. Now, if you imagine that in space, and space is effectively like not like a pond, but imagine more like a, a, a fabric of a trampoline. Space time is like a fabric of a trampoline. And um, if you have some kind of uh, disturbance at one point of that trampoline, it's going to send ripples out through the trampoline. But that's exactly what happens in space when things involving the most monstrous things there are in space, which is black holes, devour and consume other objects, either other black holes or neutron stars, uh, which are very dense and massive objects. And when they collide, when they consume, when a black hole consumes um, a neutron star, or when black holes collide with black holes, they send out the energy release from that. It's basically, ripples the entire fabric of the universe, and it spreads out in all directions like ripples in a pond through space. And they travel across the universe, and eventually, they come into contact with us. And on the fifth of January, twenty twenty, one of those gravitational waves passed right through Earth, and. What is incredibly cool about that is it passed through the Earth in a fraction of a second. So really, really fast. But as it passed through Earth, the wave stretched and compressed every human being on the planet by one one ten thousandth the size of a proton. So a really tiny amount. But for that fraction of a second, every human being was kind of squished and and compressed by those waves as they passed through you, which I think is just really cool because like wow that's so cool and what was even more amazing is 10 days later it happened again when another neutron star in a completely different part of the universe was consumed by another black hole so this is just mind-blowing that these huge events which you know struggle to get our head around that happened millions of light years away can have such an impact on earth you know, millions of years after it happened which is just incredible um and actually they're fairly common uh, i did some research and um since they were first detected by the ligo gravitational wave observatory uh, in 2015 which was a huge event because that was the first time einstein's theory had been observed and proven to be definitely true rather than just mathematically um there have been 50 gravitational waves passed through earth since 2015 so yeah and Okay, so what would happen then, I suppose, the question is, is what would happen if one of these events happened a bit closer to Earth? So let's say a light year away. Um, uh, well, if, say, a black hole consumed a neutron star, there isn't a black hole a light year away from us, but if there was um, and it consumed a neutron star or collided with another black hole, the gravitational waves obviously being closer to the source would be bigger and more powerful, but it would still only stretch and compress a human being by about 20 microns, which is about the same as about 30% of the size of a human sperm cell. So not massive, definitely a lot bigger than the ones that have been coming through um, you know, from much further away. But it's not going to do it's not going to do any damage or harm, but it's just phenomenally cool to think that stuff happens and we're not even aware of it happening. So yeah, that's my um awesome gravitational waves uh, story there. I, I love the idea that we were shrunk even by like a, that yeah. tiny, tiny amount. That's that's amazing. This that's stuff so happens. Cool. I love it. <laughs> where that it's happening, but this these events that are so far away, and and you know we're never even really aware of them because they're you know they're hard to observe and the, the universe is really big. 
but when they happen, they have such an impact that across the entire universe they are felt. Like the entire universe, they just spread out and out and out and out and out. And get weaker and weaker as they get further away from the source, which is why it only stretches just a tiny bit. But still, you know, my whole body was stretched and then compressed one ten thousandth size of a proton, which is in, in, yeah, ridiculously small, but still. That's not <laughs> yeah. the point. That's amazing. <laughs> I was, I was totally so right. so, you probably only know about these events because of that gravitational field uh, yeah. hitting us yeah it's, it's just it's, it's crazy so uh, it's, it's awesome in two in two regards one that you know mathematical theories proposed over 100 years ago get proven to be true when technology catches up with the with the theory yeah. um but also the fact that you know, everything gets squashed and squished in space. You know, everything has an impact. It's, it's just incredible to think about, really. So, yeah, I was totally blown away from that. And I've been you know, doing a bit more research on LIGO, the, the observatory they've got on gravitational waves, which is which is cool. It's amazing. Brilliant. So, is that the observatory that uses the tiny crystals to measure the very tiny, the really tiny movement? Yeah, I think it might be. Ooh, yeah. Okay, what you got for me? All right, so... I have found an article uh, about one of my favourite pastimes. Okay, so it's about sleep. <laughs> sleep is something that everyone at some point in their life absolutely love. Teenagers, not so much. Well, at least not until the morning. Uh, and young children, I'm sure you know that they don't really like to go to sleep very much. They have that fear of missing out, don't they? But at some point, everyone loves their sleep. But hardly anyone that I know actually feels that they get enough of it. Uh, and I know even less people that understand why they sleep. Like if you think about like evolutionary speaking, surely it's a bit of a disadvantage because you're unconscious for a good couple of hours when predators could come along, et cetera, et cetera. But everybody needs it. So there are people out there dedicated to studying sleep and I kind of want to be one of them, to be honest. Uh, and that's what I'm going to be talking to you about today. So if you have a Fitbit like me, you may uh, track your sleep and become a little bit obsessed with it. And you can see that there's different stages of sleep. You've got light sleep, deep sleep. Of, apparently, I only average on about an hour of that a night, which is rather annoying. And REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement stage. And it's at this stage that you dream. Uh, lots of people think that they do not dream. But if you enter the REM stage of sleep, you do dream. Uh, but some studies suggest that you only remember your dreams if you wake up during the stage. Anyway, I'm digressing a little bit. Uh, so there's a study that has happened at the University of Tsukuba. I hope I pronounced that right in Japan. And they have found that during the REM stage of sleep, the capillaries in the brain have a huge increase of blood flow. They used a cool technique that they could visualize the blood flowing in real time. And they had a little look at the subject when it was awake and in all the different stages of sleep. And they found that there was a really no difference between the awake stage and the non-REM sleep, but a huge increase during REM. So they pushed it that little bit further and they woke the subjects up when they were in the REM stage of sleep. And the result is what they called a rebound REM sleep. And that had an even more of an increase of blood flow. They believe that there is some sort of association between the blood flow and the REM stage uh, of sleep strength. They also found a decrease when the subjects were exposed to like a similar effect to coffee. So the blood flow must have an effect on the sleep quality, which is 
interesting on its own. But the theory is that increased blood flow is essentially for flushing out all of the waste products that build up in the brain over the day. So sleep is really, really important for getting your brain working properly. Please, teenagers, especially the ones at my school, pay attention to that. Please get enough sleep so you can come to school ready to learn. Uh, so there is a link that already exists between blood flow, uh, decreased REM sleep and Alzheimer's disease. So the people who carried out this study are going to continue their research and hopefully develop new treatments for these sorts of conditions. Until then, though, I'm definitely going to get as much sleep as I possibly can to make sure that my brain is nice and clear. I don't know about you, but I just found that really interesting. I've always had a bit of a thing about sleep and the reason because you're totally right evolutionarily speaking it doesn't make a huge amount of sense to sleep for so long because like you say you're exposing yourself to to high risk of being eaten um, which I guess is why fire became so prominent in, in early human cultures because it provided that safety net and maybe perhaps prior to fire coming around and then you know controlling fire anyway that actually maybe they didn't get a huge amount of sleep maybe maybe they you know maybe they, you know took turn sleeping or whatever but once you had fire I suppose you, that maybe brought about dreaming and and that deeper sleep because you had safety net right, right. maybe maybe interesting yeah, quite cool so yeah yes yeah, really really cool I, I absolutely adore sleep like <laughs> really like my new job doesn't involve me to getting out of bed and racing to an office or anything or a classroom anymore so it's actually quite nice and I, I find that I'm sleeping better because I haven't got that pressure of like having to race out the door in the morning and and like get actually <laughs> put a suit on so that, yeah. that is, it's it's Definitely, my sleep's definitely improved in it uh, since switching jobs. But, um, you try to rub it in. <laughs> but yeah, a really, really great article. Okay, right. So next up is our brand new segment, which is the Darwin Awards. Oh, it's the Darwin Awards. Right then, so for those of you who don't know what the Darwin Awards are, obviously you might have heard of Charles Darwin. Uh, Darwin is obviously the, the opponent of evolutionary theory, evolution by natural selection, and I think the Darwin Awards were put about to celebrate stupidity and, and idiocy amongst humankind. Um, those who are not very good at securing the survival of their genes to the next generation so people who kind of do stupid stuff and end up getting themselves killed or paralysed or severely injured or, you know, and then not, because obviously the point of life is to make sure your genes pass on to the next generation. Those people aren't going to do that because they're silly. And they kind of, I don't, I'm not even sure if it's an official award. I think there might be some official awards. I think it is, yeah. <laughs> but um, there are a lot of stories out there on the um on the internet and um, in books, there's some books about Darwin Awards as well, uh, about people who've done some really, really stupid, stupid stuff. And I've got two I wanted I wanted to share, and I'm going to try and share two each week because there are a lot of stupid people out there, and there's, there's a hell of a lot of stuff to talk about. Right, so this first one is homemade bungee cords don't work as well. Okay, so Bryce <laughs> Bryan, uh, so. Um, this guy, uh, no names, but this guy um, used tape, I'll repeat that, tape to fix two different bungee cords together, okay? He then cut them to the exact height of the bridge he wanted to jump from. 
Okay, so let, let's sink in for a second. The exact height of the bridge. He then tied the cord to his car and jumped into the abyss, forgetting that bungee cords actually stretch and promptly died when he hit the floor. So there you go. That's the first one. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like, what? And it, this, this one's even more crazy, okay? So um, there was an Iraqi terrorist, right, who back in the year 2000 decided to send out a load of letter bombs. Now, not being the brightest of, of sparks out there, he forgot to put postage stamps on some of the letters. So if you don't put postage stamps, what happens to the letter? It gets returned to sender. <laughs> this guy was so happy to receive some post that he ripped open this uh, letter and blew himself up. <laughs> like, like uh, uh, there are no words. There are literally no words. But yes, those are this this week's Darwin Awards. The man who tried to bungee jump off a bridge using homemade bungee that he measured to fit the actual height of the bridge, and a terrorist who opens his own letter box. So there you oh go. Oh my goodness! I mean, yeah, no <laughs> words, no words. <laughs> okay. Right then, so um, should we jump into our second articles? I think, Katie, if you're going to take yours first. Cool. Okay. So uh, I'm sure everyone knows that there is a massive climate change issue at the moment because we as humans, we're still messing with the planet and unfortunately not everyone's listening. So don't get me wrong, the politicians are currently in a big um, debate about the climate change policies and things like that, which is brilliant. Do not get me wrong about that. But do you remember not that long ago, there was a big uh, thing in the media about plastic wastes that did mm -hmm. lead to a lot of change. But it seems to have taken a bit of a, a backseat at the moment. Problem is, these two issues are related, that each one makes the other one worse. So we should not just be focusing on one. We need to be focusing on the issue as a whole. So, for example, making and processing plastics, they release greenhouse gases. They contribute to extreme weather, which then disperses and worsens the plastic pollution in the sea, for example. Uh, this results in marine species and ecosystems like the coral reef getting hit by both issues. So we need to be focusing on this. Uh, you guys may have heard about microplastics as well, building up in our ecosystems and in our food chain. So they need to be removed from the environment and at the moment they are being removed from the wastewater plants but the filters that are currently designed to act sort of like a sieve keep on getting blocked by all of the microplastics so need constant maintenance and that makes an increased running cost so people are getting a little bit annoyed with that so we've done what we usually do and we've looked to nature for a solution and i love this solution i think it's amazing uh, so scientists have created a new style of filter that removes microplastics uh, and the design has been based on how a manta ray eats. So manta rays, they filter plankton from the water, but their, fil their filter never gets clogged. Their mouths have got like um, angled slats inside them that create whirlpools and the whirlpool bounces the plankton further back into the mouth while letting the water flow directly out because of the different densities and the different size of the particles. So because only the water flows out and the plankton goes further back, the filter never gets clogged. So scientists have developed a new filter that works in a similar way. They've made a filter with all those slats to create whirlpools to bounce the microplastics away while letting the water out. 
So while this will definitely help the issue, let's hope that more is done to reduce the other negative effects that we're having on our planet. So a short one, but I thought it was really, really interesting that they've looked to nature once again to resolve the plastics issue. Yeah, I think that's awesome because, you know, always look to nature. Nature's had, well, of complex life anyway, 500 million years of evolution to create all sorts of solutions to, to problems. And, you know, if you think about all life, about 3.8 billion years of evolution. So, yeah, it's, it's come up some pretty amazing things. So, you know, we should be looking at nature more for answers to these problems. Yeah, yeah micro, microplastics is a huge problem. I think I read, I read a, something somewhere that was talking about if, like, an alien civilization arrived at Earth in, in say, I don't know, 100 million years' time, you know, the no evidence of our civilization would exist except for in the rock record there would be a, a layer of plastic and and that's how any alien civilization would would know that there was once an intelligent species on this planet because literally we have written our plastic existence into the geological record because we have so much plastic waste and all that microplastic is just building up, and it will become almost like its own sedimentary deposit. Which is I, kind I of feel that's so sad. That's so sad that that is our legacy in, that we're leaving. It's ter- terrible. Sad times, but hopefully, like you say, you know, there are there are the younger generation in particular are very motivated by climate yeah. change. It's, it's, it's up to all of us but definitely they carry the, the torch into the future and if they can maintain that enthusiasm as they get older and make real political change and, and you know, vote for parties that really want to do, tackle this problem then then things might change but you know uh, it's hard yeah it's hard to hope when you when you, you don't see the big actions but yeah, yeah. the science science the rescue as always I suppose definitely okay right so my second article, as often, because I like to talk about it, is paleontology based. Um, and actually it's been a really big week for paleontology discoveries. Even locally, there was a new dinosaur found on the Isle of Wight. There's been a, a new eagle, a new bird sort of discovery. And But this one I thought was super cool. It's like it's heading towards like the holy grail of paleontology, which is to find genetic material of dinosaurs. Because if you have genetic material dinosaurs, then, you know, who knows? You might actually get a Jurassic Park. But not getting there myself. <laughs> that would be a dream, wouldn't it? <laughs> Basically, okay, so um, scientists have found um, chromatin in fossils, preserved chromatin, which is DNA, basically, um, inside the nucleus. And this is incredibly rare, incredibly unheard of. It, and, and it only really happens in certain types of deposits. Uh, in, in paleontology, there's a term called lagerstatin, which is a term used to describe sites of exceptional preservation of fossils. And for a long time, most of those were kind of America, a few in Germany. Um, but since China has become a sort of big area for paleontology, there's been a huge increase in the number of lava stuff around uh, for scientists to look at in, in China. And one of them is called the J-hole biota. And basically what happened is some there was a volcanic eruption and some the really fine volcanic ashes entombed um, some carcasses of some dinosaurs, um, a, a particular dinosaur called Cordyopteryx, 
and it preserved it so well that it preserved it down to the cellular level. And um, they, they, when they investigated it, they found cartilage tissue preserved, which again is incredibly rare. And they used a complete array of different uh, microscopy methods um, and they managed to isolate some of the cells in that cartilage. Then they stained them um, for chemical that's really, really common. Um, and uh, it, like it's basically the same sort of chemical that we use in um, schools to look at nuclei of, of cells. And they actually saw the nuclei of dinosaur cells. Uh, and I know, I know there's photographs on, on the website that are just incredible to look at. The actual cells, cellular tissue from dinosaurs, um, and it retains threads inside that nucleus. It contains threads of chromatin DNA, um, which is incredible. So they're, they're going to do some more work on it, and they're going to see if they can isolate some actual DNA from the chromatin. Um, but it's a, yeah, it's a huge finding. Um, and this was published in a journal of communications biology um, this year. So it's brand new this week. It's huge. Uh, it's a big, big story in the, in the world of paleontology. And that's really, that's really exciting because all of our knowledge of dinosaurs is based upon fossils, which are great. Um, and we know a lot, but there's DNA is very um, easily degraded as a molecule. It doesn't generally last more than a, a thousand years at, at the most when when things die so to have to have dinosaur fossils which are you know, hundreds of millions of years old you know it, with with chromatin and, and possibly you know extraction of dna from that chromatin is this huge huge thing and i remember at uni going to go into a uh, a talk um where someone had thought they'd isolated um some sort of protein uh, from cellular tissue that was preserved in Rex. And that was really exciting. But this is a step up from that. This this is not just you know, organic tissue. This is so well preserved that they've got cells and the nuclear from this first dinosaur as well, which is, which is great. So, yeah, it's, it, it's really, really cool. And the, uh, the images are on the, on the website uh, of this article. And it's, yeah, just brilliant. It's super exciting stuff. So, with my paleontology hat on I, I'm very excited about it. yeah so it's a really great great story right then oh. so uh, another new article segment this time which is called This Week in Science ooh what happened back then then Okay, Katie, so this is your segment. What have you got for us? So uh, I thought it'd be interesting to look back at uh, this week or this day in science in history. And so on the 28th of September in 1928, there was an accidental discovery that has had a huge impact on the human race. Uh, So Sir Alexander Fleming Uh, discovered a mould that killed a culture of bacteria that he was working on on this day in 1928. Uh, The mould was called uh, Penicillin Noctorum. I hope I pronounced that one correctly. I'm not very good at Latin. Uh, And it's similar to the mould on bread. And as I'm sure many people 
have already made the connection. It led to the medicine penicillin being created and is currently used to treat and cure many, many different bacterial infections. Yeah, penicillin is awesome. My son has uh, daily penicillin, actually, and it, it's really important for keeping him uh, healthy. So yeah, penicillin changed the world, I think. Yeah, it's what I think one of the greatest discoveries of all time, and also on a very cool day, which happened on you know, the 28th of September, is a very important day in, in world history. It's also my, it's my birthday. So, it's also my yeah. <laughs> It's a very, very popular day. Uh, yeah, penicillin is incredible, and and you know uh, there are obviously some some issues with antibiotics nowadays, aren't there, with resistance mm-hmm. use and stuff like that. But but yeah, that that was definitely a, a massive moment in the history of of medicine and, and human health, I think, because it obviously mm-hmm. launched the and an, antibiotic age. But yeah, amazing. All right, so now it's time for the old favourite lame science jokes time. Name size jokes time. Okay, right. I love um, this bit, by the way. <laughs> obviously, the more we do it, the sort of like the less choice of jokes you have, and there are only so many science jokes out there that 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 are actually funny. <laughs> so, um. I, well, we can keep this feature going for the whole series, we'll see. But I wanted to continue it for at least the first few. So, okay, first one. A frog telephones the psychic hotline. His personal psychic advisor tells him, you're going to meet a beautiful young girl who wants to know everything about you. The frog is thrilled. This is great, he says. Will I meet her at a party? No, he says, in your biology class. Oh. <laughs> uh, right, okay, one more. Let's just scroll down and find it. Uh, right, here we go. So, um, there we go. Uh, right, what was the name of the first electricity detective? No idea. Sherlock Holmes. Oh, <laughs> I don't any favours by laughing at these but I can't help it <laughs> every week just I guess it's kind of the point really so yeah cool <laughs> <laughs> okay right uh, time for the final segment of the show so Katie do you want to take it away with your amazing fact of the week amazing science fact of the week so my amazing interesting science fact of the week was actually half inspired by uh, a new incentive at school where we're trying to get more students to walk to school because I'm sure you know that walking has loads of additional health benefits Mm -hmm. so in an average human lifetime the average person will walk the equivalent of five times around the equator five times so that is an average of uh, 80 years walking uh 7500 steps a day so yeah i thought that was quite interesting five times around the equator imagine all the sights you could see in that time mm-hmm. that's incredible i don't think i'm doing that at the moment that's for sure <laughs> I, think I'm fair, like... I think a lot of people would have decreased since working at home but here's hoping yeah. that more people will hear that and be inspired <laughs> yeah, actually, well, I, I have to admit i'm i'm being you know, perfectly honest 
I'm not the biggest walking fan, like walking for pleasure and for a walk. I'm not. I'm not the kind of person who will just do that. But I do like cycling, so I like to go out for a cycle and things. But walking, I'm just not not a huge fan of walking. But there are some obvious health benefits to it. So, yes, definitely, if you're a youngster, you should be walking to school and not getting a lift and things like that. Awesome. All right. Okay. Well, that is the end of episode one of season two. Um, we hope you have enjoyed all the new features uh, this season and we hope to continue those and uh, we'll be back next time for episode two of season two. So until then, goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Take care, guys. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye.